Hello, friends. Oh, wow, I'm echoing. It's very good. We're on. Wonderful. That'll do. I don't know if people saw, I'm sure you did see it this week, if you were on social media or the internet at all. Anybody here have the internet? They have it on computers now. Um, uh, the, uh, the, the images came out this week from the James Webb Telescope. Was anybody following that? Did you see that? Yes, a few people. I don't know. I think, yes, we've got it up on screen. This isn't uh, a, the background of the 1980s school pictures. You know, remember those? That's, you know, from Sears, you know. Yeah, this is actually something that's out in our universe, and it's staggering. I, these are the clearest pictures that we've ever had from deep, deep space. And when I say deep, deep space, we're talking about 13.6 billion light years away, some of these pictures, which it just, it staggers the mind, doesn't it? We can't quite get our heads around that number, 13.6 billion light years away. And, and what's really amazing is that these pictures taken from this telescope, which is actually 1.5 million kilometers away from Earth, that's where the telescope is, and it's taking pictures. It's taking pictures of one tiny, small pinprick of space that we can see, and it, of, of a whole uh, panoramic view of the universe that we don't yet have pictures of. And this is in just this one small pinprick of, of a picture. And, uh, and I, started, I did a little research, because I was blown away, as many people were by these pictures, I was blown away by, by this, and I started looking into how many, um, how many galaxies do we think there are in the universe, and the estimates right now, and these are just estimates, and I think they're conservative estimates, that there are somewhere between 100 and 200 billion galaxies in the universe. That's not just, that, that's like, like the Milky Way is a galaxy. So they're, they're estimating that there's somewhere between 100 and 200 billion galaxies. And inside those galaxies, they are estimating, and I'm pretty sure this is just a rough estimate, that there are 200 billion trillion stars. That's a lot of zeros. 200 billion trillion stars. That's their best estimate right now. And that's a lot of wiggle room between 200 billion trillion stars. There's a lot, there's, there's just so many stars out there. And, and around those stars, they're estimating that there's something like 1 to 10 trillion planets in our universe. And I was thinking about that, and, and I was led to this, one of my favorite verses in Scripture. In Colossians 1, 15 to 16, it says, For by him, that is, for by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. By him, through him, for him, all things were created. And we look at this, this majesty, this incomprehensible thing that we're, we're able to see sort of now through this telescope. And, and, and we just know there's so much that we can't even see and may never be able to see. All that invisible stuff. Scientists call it dark matter. 
because they're not that creative with their titles. Just, what is it? It's dark matter. We don't know what it is, but the universe is filled with it. Uh, but all, all things, everything, including that, everything was made by Jesus, through Jesus, for Jesus. This, it, it's un, we can't wrap our minds around this, and we certainly can't wrap our minds around God. God is beyond our ability to understand God is way beyond our ability to comprehend. If anyone ever says, including anybody up at the front here, ever says, I think we've got a handle on God, feel free to get up and say, no, you don't. <laughs> we don't. We don't. This is so, God is so, this is so much beyond us, these pictures, but God is so much beyond that because God is the one who fashioned all of that. God is so beyond us. We can't put God in a box. I, I don't know if you've watched The Simpsons ever. I'm sure this looks like a Simpsons crowd. The, the Simpsons. Uh, there's, this, there's a great episode where Homer becomes a missionary somehow. And he's sent to an island and he helps build a, a big church. And he goes, I don't know much about this God of yours, but I can tell you we built an awful nice cage for him. <laughs> I mean, the, but the notion that we can kind of capture God in a building or in our imaginations is, is ridiculous. It's absurd. And I want to say, though, in the, with that being true, I want to make this claim that we are never more like God, this incomprehensible God, this God who fashioned the 100 to 200 billion galaxies. We are never more like this God, this God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. We are never more like God than when we love our enemies. We are never more like God than when we love our enemies. And I was, I was fascinated by the responses to some of these pictures this week. Some people looked at those pictures and they said, what an incredible God we have, this artist. You know, and then never read the YouTube comments. You know, just never read the comments. It's never a good idea. But all, all, a whole bunch of people came on and said, oh, it's, not, it's just, you know, it's just stuff out there. It's not God didn't make it. And so some people were, were fighting over that stuff. Other people decided to say things like, Look at, look at all that huge, majestic stars, all that stuff. How could we think that God would care about our behaviors, our small, insignificant selves, our, our, our little problems, our sins, you know? Let's just get over ourselves. Look at how big the universe is. Do you think God really cares about our sins? Yeah. Yeah, he does. It's not like God is so busy maintaining those stars that he can't also maintain a relationship with us. If God is God, that's what God is. That's who God is. And, and so I think what we have to say today is that the same God who spoke the stars into existence and spoke us into existence... Because, you know, the psalmist says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. You know, the same psalmist who says that the, the heavens proclaim the glories of God also says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. We, we are endlessly complex. Anybody who says, well, all that stuff out there is really complex, we are far more complex 
we humans. We are far more complex than that. And we are perfectly and radically known and loved by our Creator. And if Jesus is who the Bible says he is, then yes, Jesus, yes, God, cares very, very much about how we love one another. It seems to be something of a preoccupation of Jesus's and of the Father's all throughout Scripture. I, I love, Paul's letters are really fascinating, especially Colossians, but a lot of them. Here's a little key for how to read them. You'll notice that Paul talks about these cosmic eternal mysteries. He starts with this. He starts by saying, God is like this. Through him, for him, by him, all these things were made. Therefore, stop gossiping. It's really interesting. It goes from the eternal to the very personal. And that seems to be what's happening in the incarnation of Jesus. That he who was before all things has become this small pinprick of life in Mary's womb that becomes a human being who lived for 33 years at a particular time in history, in a particular place in history, and spoke to people and ate broiled fish and was crucified and died and came back to life. And there is this, that's what the incarnation is, is this incomprehensible mystery taking on human flesh. And so does God care about the way that we love one another? Yes, very, very much. Very, very much. And so we're going to read um, some of these scriptures. We'll read the, the primary scripture for today, but then I'm going to read some others as well. And I wonder, if we have them up on the screen, I'd like us to read them together uh, as it's a practice of the church, um, publicly reading scripture together. So this is Matthew 5, 43 to 47. This is from the NIV. Let's read it together. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And we can say yes and amen to that in Vancouver. He says rain to everybody. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. No big deal. Right? If we go to the next, we have uh, 1 Peter 3.9. Let's read it together. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. Let's go to Luke 6. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Let's go to Romans 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. 
If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Are you noticing a theme running through these scriptures? This is only a very small pinprick of scripture, actually. This goes all throughout the scriptures about how we are to treat our enemies. It's, it's in the Lord's Prayer. When the, when the disciples of Jesus go, tell us how to pray. How are we to commune with the Father, this Father who you seem to have a very special relationship with? How are we to pray? Jesus gives them this prayer, which includes, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Forgive us our sins in the exact same way our Father, as we have forgiven those who have sinned against us. Do you ever pause in that moment in the prayer to consider just how you're asking the Lord to forgive you? And it goes even further. There's a little bit of a scary addendum to the Lord's Prayer, right, in the book of Matthew, where it says, for if you forgive those who have sinned against you, your Father will forgive you. Your Father in heaven will forgive you. But if you do not forgive, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. I don't think that's just a warning, though I think we should be warned. I think it's an invitation. I think that Jesus is inviting us into his life, and I think that his life is marked indelibly by love for enemies. Loving your enemies and praying for your persecutors means that you may be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. And that's what Jesus is inviting us into, to be sons and daughters, to be his younger brothers and sisters. Really, it's an incredible claim that Jesus is making, that he is inviting us to become children of God. That's in, in, earlier in the book of Matthew, in, in Matthew 5, in the blessings, in the Beatitudes, that I think the penultimate blessing is, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. This is what it means to be the children of God, to have that identity, is that you're a peacemaker. Who do you make peace with? Not with your best friend. You're already at peace. You make peace with enemies. This is what Jesus is like, and he's inviting us into his life. We are never more like the Son of God than when we love our enemies. We see this in Jesus' life, right? In Luke 23, as he is being crucified, Jesus speaks out these words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That is the ultimate example of enemy love. The comedian Jim Carrey had a bit at one point where he said, I couldn't believe it when I read that Jesus was forgiving people from the cross. He said, if it was me, I would not have been doing that. I would, not, I would have been up there going, oh, you wait until my father hears about this. Like that's what, you know, and that's what we're like. We are like that, aren't we? But that's not what Jesus is like. Jesus is actually literally forgiving the people who are killing him while he's on the cross. We, we see it again. I, I want to keep on hammering on this because I think it's so important from Colossians. Again, one of my favorite passages. This is Colossians 1, verse 21 to 22. And you, so this is talking about to us, to those who are trying to be followers, and you who once were alienated, and hostile in mind. Hostile towards who? Hostile towards God in our minds. 
doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We were hostile. We were enemies. And this is what Jesus has done for us. Romans 5, verse 10 says, for if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? While we were hostile, while we were enemies, while they were crucifying him to death, Jesus forgives this is what enemy love looks like. This is what Jesus is like. This is how God has been and is being towards us right now. That he is loving those who would be his enemies. The God of creation has, has treated us, those who would be his enemy, with love, with mercy, with blessing, and not curses. And he is inviting us to do the same. He says, if we are to be united with him in love, this is how we will live. This is what we should be marked with. This is how the world should see Christians, right? Isn't this how the world sees Christians? Isn't this the testimony and the witness that's out there that Christians love their enemies? Is that true? Not on Facebook, right? Anywhere else? Like, shouldn't that be, shouldn't it be like so just cliched? Oh, well, there, there goes those Christians again. Oh, just loving their enemies. We're getting sick, right sick and tired of it. They're just loving their enemies so much it's annoying. Well, it's hard. It's hard, right? It's hard to, let's not be romantic about it. Let's not be idealistic about it. Let's be honest. It's really, really hard. Because I can say stuff like this. Oh, we should love our enemy. Oh, yeah, yeah, we should really love our enemy. I mean, not Jim. I don't know if there's a Jim here in the room. I don't, <laughs> I don't mean to, but is there a Jim? I don't know. Not Alphonse. Let's say Alphonse. Not Alphonse. Probably not an Alphonse in the room. Not him, you know, because he's a jerk. He's a real jerk. Yeah, the more a jerk in Alphonse is, the more we're actually called to love Alphonse. It's strange. It's hard, though. It's really, really hard. You ever had an enemy? Anybody here ever have an enemy? Just one? one or just, okay, a couple, couple, couple people. All right. Yeah? You ever have an enemy? Like, it's, as soon as you get a real enemy, like a real enemy. Are you naming names over there? Is that what you're saying? Okay. As soon as you get, like, a real genuine, not laughing about it, enemy. Someone who hates you. Someone who wants to hurt you. Someone who will cut you out. Someone who is trying to ruin your reputation. Someone who's trying to turn other people against you. Someone who is oppressing you or oppressing your people. Someone who is dismissing you. Someone who maybe is even trying to kill you. Maybe not even just you as an individual, but you as a people or, or, or in a country or whatever it happens to be. The, you know, when Jesus is talking about enemies, he's not in some powerful group. We, we sometimes make the mistake of reading Jesus' words from our place of relative power and privilege. Jesus was part of an oppressed group. He was crucified. 
the Romans were occupying the area, and people did not like that. Jewish people would not drink from the same water source as Romans because they considered them filthy oppressors. They had enemies. They knew what that was like. When you've had an enemy, there's no romanticism of this idea of loving them, of blessing them and not cursing them, because everything in us, everything in us, wants to curse our enemies. Everything. Because that's very natural. That's how we're bent. That's how this kind of works. Loving your enemy, this, this idea, is actually incredibly offensive when it's really practiced. I don't know if you've ever seen it really, really practiced, but it's offensive. People get upset about it. Do you remember, anybody remember the name Dylan Roof? Remember that name? This was back in 2015. Dylan Roof was a neo-Nazi white supremacist who was uh, down in the South, and he wanted to kick off a race war. That was his goal. And so he went and he joined a Bible study at Charleston Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in 2015. And at the end of the Bible study, he shot and killed nine people, including the, the church's pastor. And the next day, he was, he was arrested, he was caught, he was arrested, and he had his bond hearing. And it, it was a strange thing, I've never seen this before, but the, at that moment, the, the victim's families had the opportunity to address him. But he was on video, but they had the, I, I've never seen that before in a court of law, but in this particular jurisdiction, they were allowed to. And what happened was, here was this, this hateful, hateful man who had just killed family and friends, church members. And he was standing there, just blank expression. And church member after church member, mostly older black women, got up to the mic and looked him in the face and said, I forgive you. I forgive you. I for just weeping, just yelling it out, I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. I remember watching that and just being in a flood of tears. I couldn't comprehend it. I couldn't, couldn't understand it. And, and some people saw that and they were just moved. They said, oh, this is what Christianity actually looks like. But other people saw that and they were angry. They were outraged. Why should these historically oppressed southern black churchgoers feel this pressure to forgive this monster? Should they, should they not forgive him? Should they instead feel the rage and vengeance and, and lead people into feeling rage and vengeance towards this idea, this person, so that this kind of thing never happens again? It is outrageous. It is scandalous that they would get up and say, I forgive you. You may remember the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa after the years and years of apartheid. It was a crazy situation when Nelson Mandela came to power that, that mostly the, the, the white minority was still holding a lot of the power and a lot of the money and, and a lot of the military. And they didn't know what to do, so they set up the Tr Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And they said, if you come forward and you confess your crimes, and when we say crimes, we're talking murder, then what will happen is you will have, the, you will have to confess, and you will have to confess in front of your victims' families and then you'll be given the opportunity to be forgiven. That was the process that they went through. And, and they said day after day, in, in uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu's incredible book, No Future Without Forgiveness, I can't recommend it highly enough. 
He said they knew it was a religious work they were doing and they felt the prayers of everyone from around the world as, as people stood and confessed their crimes. And he said person after person would, be, would, would confess their crime and the family that they had taken a, a child from, a son from, a daughter from, would the, usually mothers would come up and say, I forgive you and now you're part of my family. They would adopt them in. It was this incredible work of forgiveness, but it was offensive. People said, this is wrong. They must pay for their crimes. Don't we think people must pay for their crimes? Don't we ultimately believe that? Isn't that the basis of just about every Hollywood movie? We long for justice and vengeance. We do. There was a movie that came out a few years ago called The Revenant. remember watching this. I don't know if people saw it, but it was a three-hour-long movie. Uh, Leo DiCaprio won a... He's finally won an Academy Award for it. and it's, It was based on a true life story, but with a twist. And the story was set, set a while ago, and, and these, these men were out trapping and hunting, and one man uh, killed this other man's son, and then tried to kill this other man and left him for dead. But the man didn't die. He crawled out of his grave, basically crawled across the country uh, to find this man, was driven by vengeance and this sense of justice. This man has to pay for what he has done. And, and at the end of the movie, I'm going to ruin it for you, but it's several years old. And so at the end of the movie, this, this man who has committed these horrible, horrible acts is, is taken and he dies horribly. And, and I remember watching that movie and thinking, there is no other way that this movie could end and, and the whole crowd walk away feeling okay. This guy has to die horribly. The actual story in real life is that the man lives. He doesn't die. But Hollywood understood, we can't tell that story. That doesn't work. Every, people are going to riot if we tell that story. We cannot tell the story where Leonardo DiCaprio comes back, finds the man who killed the son, and go, well, actually, you know what? I forgive you. We can't tell that story. No one would believe it. But isn't that the story of the gospel? Isn't that what Jesus is asking from the cross? Father, forgive them. We are killing his son. Father, forgive them. That's, we long for this justice, but when it's us, we kind of long for mercy. But Jesus is inviting us into a wholly different way. Loving our enemies is hard. Scandalous. Even foolish in the eyes of the world. Even wrong to do so. There's a very famous book called The Sunflower. Again, I recommend it. Um, it's based on a real life story, and this, this man wrote it. He was uh, a Jewish person in Auschwitz prison, and he was brought at one point to the infirmary where there was a member of the SS, one of the, the soldiers who had been responsible for horrific atrocities against Jewish people. And this SS officer was dying. And he wanted to bring a Jewish person in and confess his crimes and be forgiven. And so the Sunflower, the volume one of the Sunflower is this telling this story. That this man is saying, here's what I've done, would you forgive me? And the book ends with the question to the reader, well, what would you have done in this scenario? Would you have forgiven? 
And then someone took that book and they sent it to 53 different religious and world thinkers and said, well, what was the right thing to do in that scenario? Was it right to forgive? Or should he not have forgiven? What was the right thing to do before this man dies? What is the right thing to do? And there was a wide variety of responses. And it's a complicated question because we are complicated people. It's a very complicated question because can you forgive? Can that one man, that one Jewish man in Auschwitz, forgive this man for the crimes he's committed against a whole bunch of other people? Is that right? Is that okay? So those are the questions that they were answering. But when we think of the story of Jesus, this is exactly what Jesus did. That he loved his enemies. He forgave his enemies on behalf of himself. He said, this is the creator of all those galaxies, of all those stars, of all those planets, of this planet, of all the rocks and mountains and trees and fish and birds on this planet, of all of you, of all the atoms and molecules inside of you. I am the creator of it all. And, and you have become, by your choice, my enemy. To the point where you, when you saw the beauty of the creator, you, as humanity, chose to kill. And from my execution device, I am saying, forgive them, Father. Jesus is the wronged party. Jesus is the victim. For we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus loves his enemies. Loves those who have been hostile in mind. And he invites us to be like him. He invites us to join with him in this scandalous love for our enemies. Even if the enemy keeps on being the enemy. We sometimes have this romantic notion that if we forgive somebody, they will turn around and go, oh, well, that was such a nice thing of you to do. I'll now be your friend. Sometimes that happens. Often it doesn't. I remember um, I was praying for somebody once, praying for a situation, and it was a person who owed us a lot of money and was also at that time speaking very badly about us and felt quite justified in not paying back the money. And it was just it was a really, really bad scenario. And I was praying for them. And, and as I was praying, God said, uh, hey, remember that line in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts? we forgive uh, those who have debts, you know, against, uh, you remember that bit? <laughs> like, and I just remember going, ah, oh, no. <laughs> you mean like, really? <laughs> like, actually the debts? Yeah, actually the debts. And I called up the person who was kind of handling it. I said, I think that we just need to forgive the debts. I think we just have to do it. And, and, and so we did. And, uh, and I'd love to tell you that that person sort of became our friend and stopped talking, but they didn't. They're still talking bad about us, you know? And so I still have to pray for that person every day. Forgive us. Forgive me my sins. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We are supposed to be praying and loving our enemies daily, and I do. I do this. This is part of my practice. And, and it says, we, you know, God will not fail to hear your prayers if you begin by lifting up your enemies 
with love. And I want to give you a little uh, a gift here, uh, a blessing prayer that I do pray daily for those who would be my enemies. Um, and, and this is the way that I pray. You can take it if you like. You can adapt it. You can do your own. I don't, but it's an offering I'll give to you. I say, Lord, would you bless blank Alphonse? Let's call it Alphonse. Bless Alphonse. And rescue me by his prayers. It's one thing to say, oh, just bless that person. But I'm saying, rescue me by his prayers. I pray that his heart would be so changed that he would be praying for me. And that I might learn to receive from him. And then I go a little bit further. I say, bless Alphonse. Rescue me by his prayers. And, and help me to remember him according to the joy we shared. Because often our enemies are people with whom we have shared joy. Now, if, I can't, if there hasn't been any joy there, then I'll pray... And Lord, help me to think of that person with kindness and love. But I pray for this person by name. I pray for people by name daily. Because this is the closest we can get to Christ-likeness. And I don't find it easy. But by learning to bless and love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, and not to curse them. And we're going to take uh, communion now.